With Yuletide festivities upon us, the History of Vikings is proud to recommend a book titled The Poetic Edda, A Study Guide. This book would make an excellent holiday gift for any Norse mythology and Viking Age enthusiast. Most of you who have listened to this podcast know that the Poetic Edda comprises a mythology of gods and their human heroes, who are driven by honor, lust, and wisdom, always seeking power, and always settling a new dispute. The Edda begins with resourceful creator gods crafting the universe out of a giant's corpse, and a powerful Cirrus imparting details about the inevitable chaos of Ragnarok, the adventures of Thor, and the gods' unsavory encounter with Loki and Sue, leading up to the death of Baldur and the first signs of Ragnarok. The Poetic Edda, a study guide, is available via Amazon.com and the link in the description below. Be sure to check it out and learn all about the adventures of Norse gods and heroes this holiday season. Hello and welcome to the History of Vikings. Before we begin today, I would just like to remind you that this month, December 2019, is Vikings Month here at the History of Vikings. Now that means that every week in December, we'll be releasing a new podcast episode in addition to a new video on our YouTube channel. Be sure to subscribe to both of those if you haven't already. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank a friend of mine, a man by the name of Thomas Denmark, for providing excellent artwork to accompany our new YouTube videos. Thomas is someone whose work I hold in very high regard, and if any of you are interested with it being the holiday season and perhaps gifting someone a beautiful illustration of a scene from Norse mythology, I do encourage you to check out his online store, Thomas Denmark, via the link in the description below. Welcome to this very special episode of the History of Vikings podcast. This is the holiday special for the year 2019 for the podcast, and I'm very delighted to be joined by a returning guest that is Dr. Matthias Nordvig of the University of Colorado Boulder. Dr. Nordvig teaches pre-Christian Nordic mythologies, Scandinavian folklore, North Atlantic and Greenlandic literature, reception history of the Viking Age in the Nordic Studies program there. And he also has a YouTube channel called the Nordic Mythology Channel, uh, where he interviews all sorts of leading figures in the field of Viking studies and Old Norse studies. I'll put a link to that in the description below. And he is the host of a new podcast called the Nordic Mythology Podcast, which I'll put a link to as well. But Dr. Nordvig, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me, Noah. Well, it's a pleasure to have you back on the show. Today, we're going to be talking about the Old Norse winter holiday of Yule, or in Old Norse, Yule. Throughout the Middle Ages, you know, one can envision Christians celebrating the birth of Christ in various ways. But the pagan people of Scandinavia sort of had this winter holiday of their own. First and foremost, where does one get this idea of the celebration of Yule from, this idea of the peoples of Northern Europe celebrating a holiday towards the end of the winter? First of all, the, the word Yule is actually uh, very old. We find it attested in, in all the different Germanic languages, including Gothic which dies out in five, uh, six hundreds um, 
So that, of course, means then that we have an idea based off of this word appearing in different contexts and in certain historical documents describing that Goths, for instance, would have a celebration um, uh, around this time of year. I think that the description is that they dress up with masks and, and bang shields and, and shout Yule or something like that. And um, <laughs> it's a very interesting description, actually. And now, this is at the, um, the Byzantine emperor's uh, uh, court, as far as I remember. And um, it's part of the Christian celebrations around this time of year there. So that's also something to take note of. But, um, but yeah, the, the word exists as Yule in Old Norse, and it uh, exists as Yule in English, and is present, so to speak, in the vocabulary from the very beginning. So that's one reason that scholars have thought to themselves, okay, we have, we have a pagan version of a Christmas celebration. Aside from that, we, of course, have uh, uh, um, the sa saga of Haukon the Good, um, which you can find in the compilation Heimskringla, um, the compilation of the, the Nor uh, Norwegian king's sagas, that may or may not have been written by Snorri Sturluson, uh, who also wrote the Edda, uh, where we have most of our knowledge about Nordic mythology from. Now, I say may or may not, because most people tend to think that he wrote it, but uh, this is actually not by scholars attested before, I believe, the uh, 15 or 1600s. But Nonetheless, let's just say that Snorri wrote it. And um, what Snorri tells us is that there is a Yule celebration around uh, this time of year, close to when Christians will uh, celebrate Yule. He simply says that back in the day when people were still pagan, they used to celebrate uh, the Yule celebrations sometime, I believe, in the, uh, the middle of, the, of December. And... This is very important, this, this description, because uh, what he also tells us in this story, um, which is about a king who is said to have been baptized and is therefore Christian, his name, Haakon the Good, his uh, other name is Adelstein's Fostri, which means the one who has been raised by uh, Athelstan. So he's, he's a Norwegian king who has been raised in England and baptized there, then comes back to uh, Norway and ascends to the throne. And then, uh, according to Snorri Sturluson, he's trying to Christianize Norway, but he fails. And that's the important uh, little uh, detail to consider here in the description of the Yule uh, ritual, because uh, Snorri and other authors of medieval Iceland had a tendency to try to make uh, that pre-Christian religion of Scandinavia look closer to their uh, Christian rituals and beliefs and so on. So in this whole mess where uh, Haakon the Good is trying to Christianize Norway, what we quickly find out is that the earls of uh, Hladir um, up in modern-day Trondheim area, a little north of where the uh, royal seat uh, in Bergen was back in, uh, in the medieval period, they are uh, resisting this, um, and um, especially their population is, is not particularly favorable to this. And um, we have the Earl um, up there who is trying to mitigate the situation when uh, Haakon uh, shows up for this dual ritual up there. And he, he simply uh, tries to uh, uh, push Christ on, on people, and they don't like that situation. And they need him to, to partake in that ritual 
and then he makes the sign of the cross over the drinking horn and and all of these things. So that whole story is more a story about Christianity than anything else. But it has been taken as as sort of a a source to uh, our knowledge about what the Vikings did around that time, basically. Hakon's rule was perhaps not as similar in style as that of his other sort of Christian rulers of the Middle Ages in that he wasn't incredibly insistent upon his religion. Well, perhaps he was, but maybe he was more tolerant. In the story of sort of Yule and the saga of Hakon the Good, wasn't there something to the effect of Hakon, through jurisdiction, made it a rule that the pagan people had to celebrate a winter holiday around the time in December when winter was at its peak, sort of coinciding with the Christian celebration of Christmas? Well, yeah, so that, that, that ends up being sort of like the compromise here that, uh, well, we have to have some kind of celebration around this period of time. But what this story really shows, I think, because we also have other stories about him or mentions of this king that are actually more negative. He's called an apostate by other historians. So that could indicate that he actually was baptized in England and then simply forgot all about Christianity once he became king of Norway. We have to consider that that time period, right, um, there's probably not a lot of uh, Christians in Norway. There, there are probably some, but not a lot. And um, the king's power, um, regardless of what kind of religion we're dealing with, always rests on the public's favor in one sense or another. Um, we have a tendency to think of kings uh, uh, as these, like, um, medieval supreme monarchs, right? But in in that society, a king was actually poised to be very good at alliances between himself and other important families, aristocrats, and then also, of course, uh, having sort of a, a, a feel for the public opinion. Because at any point in time, we, we could see a... a peasant uprising, for instance, if people became uh, too uh, disgruntled, right? So, so that's also part of the situation. And what we might be dealing with here is a set of stories around this king in Bergen that have to do with the fact that he was baptized in England, and then he may or may not have tried uh, to at least spread Christianity in some sense or another. Um, but he was definitely not particularly successful. And that, that's really the, um, the basic takeaway from the story is that we have a king who has a relationship to Christianity, but there was no um, spreading of Christianity, or at least no successful spreading of Christianity in Norway in his time. And so what I'm basically saying here is that we can't really trust this as a credible uh, historical source on on the religious relationships uh, in Norway at that time period. Um, and since Snorri Sturluson uh, comes after, as a writer, um, uh, comes after those who have called him an apostate, some scholars have suggested that Snorri is actually writing almost entirely a fictitious story about him, which would then also tell us a little bit about that Yule celebration. Another thing that we should consider is the description of the Yule celebration. Um, now this, uh, uh, tells us they have sacrifices and people cook, 
the meat of, of, of animals that have brought there as a sort of sacrificial tax. And, um, and those descriptions um, of, of the ritual in and of themselves are also very stereotypical for the ways that the saga literature represents pre-Christian rituals. And what we can see is that these, these representations um, seem to borrow a little bit from, from what different authors have known of, of other traditions out there. So that means that, again, that other scholars have then suggested that the descriptions of the rituals in and of themselves are disingenuous, and uh, we can't even trust them either. So it's actually, <laughs> as a source to something that tells us about a, a, a supposedly big, important holiday back in the Viking Age, it's actually a very uncertain <laughs> source to use. <laughs> Fascinating. Well, based off of the sources that we do have, no matter what their reliability, what can we imagine was going on at these Yule celebrations? What sort of rituals, what sort of gods were revered? What sort of feasting occurred? Yeah, so um, to, to start off, I mean, um, if we, uh, I'm, I'm sorry if I've disappointed any of the listeners by, by saying this, because I know that there are a lot of people are very much like the idea of of of, uh, of Vikings also having a, a Yule ritual um, of sorts, and um, and so um, what we can say is that there definitely was a, a ritual, uh, some kind of holiday taking place around this time period. First of all, and secondly, um, well, it's a very good question. What what would have taken place? Um, I, I would suppose, based off of my general knowledge of uh, religion, that in this time period, what might have taken place uh, are sacrifices. They would have sacrificed probably animals. Um, um, they would have uh, um, uh, had a big feast if they, of course, had the means to um, uh, for um, maybe a population of, uh, of, of a general region. So what we do know is, of course, that in, in, in pre-Christian times in Scandinavia, there are these central sites, um, different uh, places that uh, scholars tend to not want to call temples, but they kind of could be, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Um, we simply just don't, don't, don't want to call it that because, you know, when we, uh, somebody says temple, we think, you know, these uh, Greek buildings with, uh, with columns and such things, and that's not what they were. They were uh, long houses with a, sort of like a, a, a complex of other buildings around them. And um, we have uh, found several of those uh, um, over the last 20, 30 years in Scandinavia. And, and these, these sites show evidence of a lot of ritual activity. And uh, some of them, uh, like the Tiso site in Denmark on the island of Zealand, uh, seems to only have been used in the summertime, and so maybe maybe there were places that were um, also mainly just used in the winter time. Who knows? Um, but at these these sites, um, Uppsala would be another place, right? Uh, that's where we could uh, expect such big uh, calendrical rituals to take place. These rituals that would take place during the year um, according to a calendar um, in context of um, probably general agricultural pursuits. So there'd be 
a harvest ritual, a sowing ritual, and and probably also one around uh, this you know less uh, in uh, less fertile period um, in December, right? And people would come there. They would bring animals um, as tax, and some of these animals would. would probably be sacrificed to uh, different deities and others will be used for food um we can go into the details of how they uh, they would manage you know this um division of of what goes to the gods and what goes to humans um we see different uh, attitudes to that in 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 different cultures for instance i believe the greeks um they say that the fat bone and um and hides um go to the gods whereas the meat goes uh, to the uh humans um but but that would that would take place there and um if we go to Adam of Bremen's description of the temple of uh, Uppsala what he tells uh, us if we can trust him of course <laughs> uh, is that Odin Thor and Freyr are venerated in that temple so um in Uppsala the possibility is that uh, during such a uh, Yule feast, um, that would be one of those uh, three deities, perhaps, um, who were celebrated. Now, the interesting thing here is that uh, I, I think the most important function of such a ritual would be to uh, soothe people's need for the uh, notion that the ground will become fertile again um bring bring back fertility because such rituals are usually there um um as sort of like a human ocd kind of thing right we uh, <laughs> we have to we have to do this ritual to make sure that it becomes summer again and um and so so whatever would take place in in uh, in in that ritual would be directed towards that particular end goal Interesting, interesting, and this is kind of obscure, but I know it's mentioned uh, going back to the saga of Hakon the Good. There is the significance of sacrificing horses at these Yule feasts, or perhaps that was even a, a pagan tradition that far extends Yule. Right? Is this uh, idea of um, eating horse meat around this time? Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, so, so that seems to be um, one of these uh, more trustworthy aspects of the story. Uh, we know from medieval laws in Scandinavia that eating horse meat was forbidden um, in Christianity. So that probably suggests that the horse was an important uh, creature for um, uh, for the pre-Christian Scandinavians, and and that um, it had a very important role in in rituals. Uh, we can also see this in archaeological remains uh, of sacrifices where we find them here and there that. Horses are uh, um, a, a normal occurrence. Um, so, when it comes to uh, um, the horse in terms of its a, a sort of importance in in the literature, we do have some interesting examples from the saga literature as well. Uh, first of all, we have um, the story about Hrakket uh, Freiskodi, who um, takes land in eastern Iceland. Now, the interesting thing about this saga is that uh, the figure himself, Hrakir, is actually um, a, almost entirely uh, a made-up character. And the places that the saga mentions where he lived and such don't seem to have existed either. So there's 
a big aspect of sort of uh, a fictitious story about this. But there's also in this story a very interesting um, relationship between this man um, who calls himself Freyskodi, which means uh, sort of a priest of Freyr, um, and then a horse that he has vowed that nobody can ride. And um, of course, the, the 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 complication of the saga is that. Uh, uh, this um, kid from the uh, from the neighbor farm who's working for him does ride the horse, and then he finds out and he kills him, and and then we have a whole typical saga feud situation. But with this story about the horse um, that he has sort of dedicated to Freyr, that is considered holy, um, comes also a, some ritualistic aspects because after he is killed. Um, uh, uh, the the kid who rides the horse, the um, um, the neighboring family uh, punishes him uh, in in these very sort of like mythological ways. First of all, we have a we have the horse; it gets pushed off a cliff, and um, and secondly, he is hung by uh, his heels. I believe they uh, uh, take a rope. And and poke it through his uh, Achilles tendons, and then hangs him there. <laughs> and and that's there's just uh, several scholars have suggested that that is sort of like reminiscent of some kind of Odin mythology. We have some Freya mythology in there as well. So so that's just interesting to take into consideration how such so like the sagas, just like the saga of uh, Haukon the Good, they can have like these. Um, mythological structural elements in there um, that that you you have to sort of know the whole uh, mythological complex that that is available to us in in the entire literature to, to really get. But once you do, you're like, oh wait, <laughs> that that seems like a, that's a reference to Odin, right? But so what this story tells us is that um, the horse, at least in this context, seems to be important. And maybe even a holy animal, and associated with Freyr. And what we also have, of course, is the a very curious story of uh, the Völsi. So Völsa Dauter is this story about um, uh, King Olaf, Saint Olaf of Norway, uh, one of the big Christianizing kings. He goes north because he's heard of this little community that lives uh, up in northern Norway where the uh, woman is the head of the household and she worships a horse penis. Um, and, and this is an, an, um, a horse penis that has been embalmed and t- they take it out every evening and pass it around and then they compose a little poem um, over it. And then, of course, the whole thing ends with the, the, the family accepting Christianity once uh, St. Olaf uh, reveals himself as as this uh, awesome Christianizing king, um, but the the interesting thing about this story is, of course, that we have again a horse linked to fertility, right? So we have these these indications in 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 different parts of the literature that seem to suggest that we have horses associated with fertility and the god Freyr, and that's uh, that we can use that material. Uh, to then suggest, well, since these uh, early Christian laws are prohibiting eating horse meat, it's probably because the horse in pre-Christian society was closely linked to 
fertility, right? And so that is, of course, then interesting to consider in, uh, when at the Yule ritual, it is said that they're eating horse meat. Maybe that sort of goes along the lines of the interpretation of that ritual as, as a fertility ritual. How interesting. Well, another modern holiday tradition that occurs around us is this idea of swearing oaths or New Year's resolutions. Now, the swearing of oaths, is that something that perhaps could be linked to the celebration of Yule in Old Norse literature? I know the saga of, I believe it's Havor and Hadrick, and even Sturlog saga Starfsfarmer are two particular Old Norse sagas that feature oaths sworn at one of these Yule festivals. And then, of course, there are, I believe it's in the, again, the saga of Havor and Hadrick, this idea of touching a boar whilst swearing an oath. And then, of course, that, that boar would be sacrificed at the, I believe it's sonar blot. So is this idea of swearing oath something that could be linked to Yule? I think so. Yeah. See, so, so this is where, you know, um, so when, when we are looking at this type of literature, we have to consider how much would a person who is in the medieval period writing stuff down about this, how much would they actually know? And when it comes to things like oaths, I think we can trust um, a lot of the things that are being said um, because that's such an important component that doesn't necessarily uh, carry too many uh, religious connotations and therefore could have a long carryover after conversion. Um, so I think, I think that, that situation, and, 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 and it's not improbable that, that they would uh, swear an oath by touching the, uh, the, the, the back of the boar um, uh, during the ritual. And it makes sense too that you know in in a ritualistic setting, that's where oaths carry the most weight. Um, uh, we see this in in other contexts as well. Um, that that uh, there, there's a lot of ritualistic aspects to share uh, to to swearing an oath in and of itself. So obviously, if if you um, swear an oath as as a king, for instance. Uh, at this uh, uh, holy tide um, celebration, that oath will carry more weight than um, in other contexts. Is a possible way of uh, uh, interpreting this. Um, now, whether or not that was something that everybody was going to do at a at a ritual like this, that is that is more up for debate um, because we have to consider the social function of of, of rituals like these. Uh, uh, is especially if the ritual is is uh, one that is tied to the idea of the progress of time and the calendar and bringing everybody from a certain region together um see i mean people back then didn't have text messaging and uh and 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 such uh, speedy ways of getting in contact with one another right so if you are the king um, and you have that central site, and people know that they're supposed to come to that central site at a certain day um, during the winter, probably also the summer, and and m maybe at other times during the year. Um, it would be the most one of the most important aspects of the ritual for everybody to 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 sort of renew their allegiance to the king. 
Um, so, so I think that the idea of oath, uh, oath swearing in that context is probably very genuine. That would be one of those um, uh, examples of where they get it right, so to speak. Well, Dr. Nordvig, thank you so much for joining me today. But before I let you go, just talking about the Old Norse winter holiday of Yule. I mean, this is one of the tricky things when dealing with, you know, saga literature itself and other Old Norse uh, literary sources is, you know, separating the fact from fiction and um, just sort of weeding through, you know, and finding what is actually true. But what are some things that we should keep in mind about this winter pagan holiday celebrated in Northern Europe? Well, so... I think, you know, one of the most important things to consider is that we, we nowadays, we, what we tend to say is that, oh, it probably took place around the solstice. Um, but there are different reasons that, that that might actually not have worked out that well for them. Um, it, so the, the, the most uh, functional theory about the, the, the old pre-Christian calendar in Scandinavia um, uh, has been presented by the scholar uh, of religion in Sweden, Andreas Nordberg. Uh, he suggests that they actually had a um, lunisolar calendar, which means a, a calendar that is based off the progression of the moon, which is then tied to the solstices. Um, and this is very technical, the way that this works, but, but in... in the basic problem is that if you you count your calendar based off of the moon, um, then you are left with um, uh, you you you're lacking eleven days basically. Um, and uh, Muslims, for instance, will know this because uh, the the Ramadan is based off of uh, a lunar calendar as well. So that means that the Ramadan will then move around uh, over the year. Um, but what Andreas Norberg has suggested is that they, they used the, um, the solstices to anchor that lunar calendar so that it wouldn't fluctuate too much, which means then that, um, I believe every third year people would have to have a 13th month, um, uh, and then 12 months, uh, on the other two years. And um, what it looks like is that uh, the, um, uh, uh, the, win the, the winter solstice or the, the, the Yule celebration actually then happened um, sometime within um, the, um, uh, if I get it right, uh, it would probably happen sometime around um, um, the, the dates of the new moon. Uh, in what is called the second Yule month, because that's another thing. There are two months that uh, seem to carry the name Yule in, in these calendars. So, so that tells us then that it, that it might actually be a lot more complicated the, uh, the way or when they actually uh, had these, um, uh, these rituals. And I mean, I'm, no, um, I'm, I'm not particularly good with math, so, uh, so I'm not even sure that I got the description right, right here, but um, I would suggest that uh, 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 people, if they can read Swedish at least, uh, uh, get a hold of his uh, his dissertation. It has a good uh, uh, English um, abstract too. It's called Yule Disting and Pre-Ecclesiastical 
uh, time reckoning. That's uh, that's the um, the title of the uh, uh, the dissertation. Um, so yeah, that's that's one thing I think uh, uh, would be important to keep in mind. Um, another thing is also that um, we we should keep in mind that these authors of the medieval period they did what they could to make the traditions of of those pre-Christian ancestors of theirs look more like uh, their current medieval traditions. And that then, of course, you know, if you want to celebrate Viking Yule, I, 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 I say, why not? You know, <laughs> like uh, there's, there's no reason not to, uh, uh, because, I mean, nowadays we're in this, uh, in this time period that's after when these uh, uh, authors were writing about that. And it's, it's basically almost impossible to to get back to uh, whatever actually did take place before uh, yeah. people converted to Christianity. So if you want to spice up your Yule celebration with a little bit of Viking tradition of oath swearing and something like that, I think people should just go ahead and, and read Hawkon the Good Saga and, and take whatever they, they find useful from it. I mean... Um, <laughs> I'm I'm not I'm not here to kill people's dreams. <laughs> well, fascinating. Well, Dr. Nordvig, it's been a pleasure speaking to you as always. And before I let you go again, just let everyone listening know where they can find your Nordic Mythology YouTube channel and your podcast and all of the other uh, great work that you do. Yeah, no, it's uh, been a real pleasure to be here again. And yeah, so you can, uh, of course, always just uh, type in my name, Matthias Nordvig, in uh, YouTube uh, or uh, the Nordic Mythology channel, for that matter. And then you can find my channel. Um, I also have a um, webpage that's uh, nordicmythologychannel.com. Um, and the podcast that I'm doing with Daniel Ferrand, um, who has the um, uh, store uh, horns of odin um which sells drinking horns if uh, again if you want to uh, spice up your viking uh, christmas um uh, <laughs> you can find that the uh, podcast uh, on spotify and itunes um uh, you just uh, write in um nordic mythology podcast and you'll be able to find it there that's awesome. And I do encourage everyone listening to check out those things, and I'll put links to them in the description below. But Dr. Nordvig, thanks again for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you. 